Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Chanel Polito talks with the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, about the infrastructure bill, which recently passed the Senate. And DC reporter Humberto Sanchez also comes on to talk with me about the bill and what it means for Nevada. After that, reporter Tabitha Mueller comes on the show to talk about a rise in cash buyers in the Nevada housing market and how it affects prospective home buyers who need to go with a more traditional method of buying a home, like a mortgage. At the end of the show, I've got a story on Radio Goldfield, a tiny radio station in central Nevada that brings information, music, and comedy to a larger part of rural central Nevada. I was told it was the most listened to radio station in Area 51. The Federal Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act has been in Congress now for months. As senators and House representatives hash out the details, make compromises, and debate over what should be in the now $1.2 trillion bill. The bill cleared a major hurdle this week when the Senate passed the bill on a 69-30 margin, with 19 Republicans joining the Democrats. But the bill still has to pass out of the House before it can be signed by President Joe Biden. To promote the infrastructure bill, U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg came out to Southern Nevada this week, meeting with local elected officials and touting aspects of the bill, including electric vehicles and broadband that he says will help Nevadans. Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, sat down with reporter Chanel Polito to talk about what the bill means for the Silver State. So how will drought and the effects of climate change in Nevada affect the critical energy infrastructure in Nevada, such as the Hoover Dam, and how does the bill address this issue? So the droughts that we're seeing in Nevada and and across the West reflect uh, both the impact of climate change and the need for greater resiliency. So there are a couple of things I would point to in this infrastructure package. One is that it has over $50 billion specifically assigned for resiliency efforts. That's droughts, fires, floods, and preparing for the impact that they're going to have on our critical infrastructure. Whether we're talking about the example of the Hoover Dam, whether we're talking about stress on the grid, things that happen to transit systems like in Portland where the heat wave threatened to melt the cables that, that power their transit systems so they had to shut it down, or the uh, the roads that we see washed out. All of this is, is evidence that we need to invest in a dedicated way in resilience. Of course, the other thing we need to do is stop catastrophic climate change from getting any worse. And that's also an important part of this bill. So when you see funding for electric vehicle charging stations, when you see funding for public transit, which enables us to get uh, more cars off the road by giving people alternatives, which uh, helps with congestion, but also with emissions, or any number of other measures that are here, those are about making sure that we slow climate change and stop it from having the worst impacts, even as we're dealing with the impacts that it's clearly having already today. And speaking about electric vehicles, I know that you've talked about this in numerous other locations, but as you know, the rural and low-income communities are often the hardest to sell these to for various reasons. So I'm just wondering, like, what specific strategies do you have or does the bill include to reach out to these communities and really make these vehicles more accessible to them? Yeah. So in my view, rural and low-income Americans are among those with the most to gain from the electric vehicle revolution. And I say that because, uh, first of all, uh, if you're low income, then gas is often a bigger share of your family budget. And so you'll save uh, a lot of gas money if you have an electric vehicle. 
I also mention it because uh, if you're in a rural community or a more spread out community, you drive more, which means, of course, that you use more gas. And again, you'll save more money with an EV. The challenge often is the upfront cost. And that's why the president's jobs plan proposed for rebates and incentives to lower that upfront cost. Eventually, over the years, this might not be such a problem because the more we make them here in America, the cheaper they're going to get. But right now, they're still viewed as a luxury item. And we've got to buy down that cost difference. That's something that, again, was in the president's plan. It's being discussed actively right now in the context of the budget resolution that's coming on the heels of the bipartisan deal. But I would also mention that in the bipartisan deal are charging station infrastructure grants and and funds. And what does the infrastructure bill mean for Nevada specifically? And what have you learned about Nevada while you were campaigning here? So I actually brought a few numbers to make sure I had this handy because it, it's it's worth going through a, a sense of the scale. But but before I get to the numbers, actually, what I would say about Nevada is that you have so many communities here that are fast growing and that need the infrastructure to keep up. There are uh, so many examples. We just saw one in Henderson. In that case, what you have is a, a highway that's unusually dangerous. It accounts for, I think, 10% of uh, pedestrian fatalities and crashes in the entire state just on this one stretch of highway. And local leaders have a vision for how to make it safer with this great state-local-federal partnership. We're funding it. It won a competitive grant called Infra through my department. But we could be doing so much more on projects like this for safety benefits around Nevada and around the country. Now, when I do turn to the numbers, that's $2.5 billion for road funding for Nevada alone through this bill. $460 million for public transportation. Again, that would just be the share that Nevada could expect to see based on the formulas. And that's in a state where there are over a thousand miles of highway in poor condition, which, by the way, is actually better than most because a lot of the growth here has been newer, uh, but obviously also a, a real need. And this is a place where commute times have been growing as a result of that growth. It's considered a good problem to have among cities and and communities, but one that we really need to keep up with. And so, especially in a a future-oriented area like this, it's one of the places where I think that infrastructure funding can make the biggest difference. And talking about specific highways, so we have I-15, which connects California to Southern Nevada, and it's often backed up with traffic on busy weekends. And Nevada and California have kind of been going back and forth on who's going to pay for it. Do you think that money from the infrastructure bill could be earmarked for this purpose, to pay for the expansion of this highway? Well, we're always best able to support projects when there's alignment among the states, but that can be a challenge. And one of the things that takes some of the pressure off is when we have a, a, a bigger pot of funding to work with to begin with, which is what this bill represents. Now, I'll also say that what often needs to be done to address congestion sometimes includes expansion of highways, but sometimes it includes just creating alternatives. We want to make sure we're not inducing demand. In other words, adding lanes that simply induce more people to drive, and in a few years after spending a lot of money, you're just as congested as before. We need to be smart and give people options and alternatives, uh, yes, to be able to drive efficiently and safely, but also rail alternatives, transit alternatives, good ways to get to where they need to be so that no one piece of infrastructure gets overburdened or too strained. The infrastructure bill isn't exactly on President Joe Biden's desk just yet. To break down the process, here's reporter Humberto Sanchez on the next steps for the bill. So we've been talking about this infrastructure bill a lot. What finally came to the table and what was kind of the final stuff that was in it that made the bipartisan groups come come together to pass it? 
I would say that, that like, I don't think there was any particular thing that was held in holding the whole thing up. It was really one of those situations where the old adage is it's, you know, there's no deal on, until there is a deal, meaning that all, all the details have to be considered before they can, they can say that there's a deal. So the negotiations went to the wire. It's basically playing whack-a-mole with a bunch of different issues. Uh, at one point it was the broadband portion that was holding it up. At another point, there was a how to tax cryptocurrency became an issue. They managed to get all that taken care of, basically. But the, the big vote that they took was already taken on Sunday, right? So that was to basically end debate. And they voted 69 to 30 to end debate. That's with 19 Republicans voting in favor of cutting off debate. So they, the pressure was really just to manage to get down the amendments. Everybody and their brother wanted to offer several amendments. And so the leadership has to basically tell people, you can't offer it or, or, or work out some deal. But ultimately, you know, the, the train was moving since Sunday. Everybody knew that the train was leaving the station and everybody wanted to get their pet projects on board. And with 550 billion in new funds on the line, no one was really gonna stop it. Looking at the state of Nevada, you know, what are we getting out of this, out of this $1.2 trillion? So for Nevada, we're looking at 2.5 billion for highways. 225 million for bridge replacement and repair, 462 million for transit. You're also getting 38 million over five years for electric vehicle charging, and up to two and a half billion in grants for that purpose as well that they could apply for. And for broadband, the state would get about 100 million to, to help improve broadband coverage. And according to the White House, there's about 123,000 residents who lack internet access at broadband speed. And there's also a program to help low-income families afford broadband uh, access. And according to the White House, there's about 825,000 people in the state that would benefit from that. That's about 26% of the population. And, and when you're looking at the slice of the pie for Nevada, was it appropriated by need or was it appropriated by population? How, how is Nevada faring compared to other states? It's a good question. For highway funding, there's a formula in place that doles out the money. And that's been that way for a, a while. So there was no new system for implementing it. So a lot of this is re relying on already existing rules and regulations for how money is, is doled out. Yeah. And I'm sure the Biden administration is celebrating this as a huge win getting this passed. I'm sure we'll hear from a lot of politicians on the Democratic side that this is a huge win and it's going to be great and there's not going to be any problems. Are there any criticisms or, or any concerns that were brought up about the, the passage of this bill? There's absolutely criticism. Right now, there is a, a divide amongst House progressives and House moderates. You see that chairman of the Transportation, House Transportation Committee, Peter DeFazio, he says this bill comes falls far short of uh, the policies that need to be done to address climate change and uh, things that were done in the House bill were not done in the Senate bill. He at one point uh, told me like a few weeks ago that he would be willing to, to vote against the bill because the policies aren't sufficient. They're not meeting the challenge of the need that's out there in terms of climate change, which is a big deal for him and a big deal for the progressives. And there was also a letter Monday, which Dina Titus joined saying that the seven and a half million for electric vehicle charging infrastructure, that's not nearly enough of what the country needs. They're, they're calling for 85 billion instead of seven and a half billion. That's a huge difference. Right now, the speaker has to get these people on board because they, she doesn't have a lot of room to play with. She can lose three seats, assuming that no Republicans vote for the bill, which I think is a good assumption because while in the House you had 19 Republicans break with, uh, vote for the bill and break away from President Donald Trump, who, who actually tried to lobby against the bill, 
the House Republicans are going to are going to fall more in line with him. And, and, I, and already in talks with Mark Amaday, he he's not very high on this bill, mostly because he thinks it's going to allow the Democrats to spend more money in their in the three point five trillion reconciliation budget bill that they want to they want to pass. There is a disconnect right now between the progressives and the moderates. The moderates are actually calling on the speaker to pass the bill right away. And what the speaker's doing right now is she said she's going to hold on to that House, that Senate bill until the Senate passes a $3.5 trillion package and then pass them at the same time. And that helps win progressive votes for the infrastructure bill and then uh, gets those Democratic priorities across the finish line as well. Yeah. All right. Well, Humberto, thank you so much for chatting with me about about this infrastructure bill and, and everything that's going on in D.C. right now. Anytime. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, make sure to follow our reporting on thenevadaindependent.com. First-time homebuyers in Nevada may be struggling to find a house that they can buy with a mortgage or a loan, as many houses for sale right now are being bought for cash. Our reporter Tabitha Mueller has been reporting on the issue as we see housing prices skyrocket. Tabitha, how's it going? It's going all right. I can't really complain right now. So. All right. So you spoke to some Nevadans trying to buy houses for the first time, uh, and they're getting thwarted at every turn, it seems like. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what they're going through right now? Well, I think that Lorena Caldwell, she's a Las Vegas realtor who works primarily with low income and working class families, summed it up best when she said it's a hell ride. Home buyers right now are putting in offers on homes and getting outbid every time with many families just giving up. One of Caldwell's clients, his name's Leroy Reynolds. He's a veteran who does maintenance for an apartment company, and he's been looking for a home for his wife and their three children for months. But so far, every house they've put offers on have been snatched up by cash buyers who are offering over asking price. He did put in an offer on a house sight unseen, but it fell through. It's been a really tough market. Like I said, I'm looking for a single family home just to start my American dream and uh, just to go forward man, to push forward. But right now, the houses with the cash, the cash buying right now, kind of out of the loop, but I'm still looking. I'm still. And, you know, you said this word cash buyer Uh, just for people that don't know. What is a cash buyer? What does that mean? So conventional home buyers typically purchase a house through a loan that they pay back over time. But when we talk about cash buyers, those are specifically individuals or entities who purchase a home outright with cash, no loan. And, and what is the significance of buying something with cash instead of doing a loan or a mortgage? Right. That's a good question. Usually home buyers with loans have to go through a process, you know, inspections, appraisals, and that's all designed to ensure that banks backing up that buyer can guarantee a return on its loan if something falls through. But because cash buyers aren't borrowing money, they can waive inspections. They can say, I don't need this done. This isn't important to me, Um, making it so that sellers have fewer hoops to jump through and allowing for a quicker turnaround on the entire transaction. So basically, it gives those cash buyers a leg up in the market. The problem that we're seeing right now is that across the state, an increasing number of cash buyers are driving up that pressure on the market and squeezing out would-be purchasers who rely on loans. And so it's just creating a lot of problems for people that have to use a loan to purchase a house. I spoke with Brian Bonifant, who is a project manager for UNR's Center for Regional Studies, and he said that as the housing market across the state tightens and home prices are rising, individuals with deeper pockets are offering to not only pay for homes with cash, but are often placing offers above a home's listing price, like what we saw with Leroy Reynolds. Yeah, that's, uh, not good news. You know, that's that's very bad for entry-level home buyers or uh, 
you know, just normal worker bees trying to, you know, get into a better house. So. So like I mentioned at the beginning, we've seen housing prices soar in the past year. This seems like it's probably counterintuitive considering there was a pandemic, tens of thousands of Nevadans were out of jobs, there was an economic crisis, the, the economy basically came to a standstill for several weeks. So why are home prices going up if, if, if there is this kind of economic crisis that we saw for the past year? We've seen both in the North and the South, housing prices reach incredible highs. I mean, right now in Reno, it's more than $500,000 is the median home price. And in Vegas, they've reached an all-time high above 400000 And that rise in home prices stems partly from supply and demand pressures, right? There's limited inventory in the market. And so competition for houses has increased. And, and the other part of this too, is when we say we've seen a huge economic effect from COVID, yes and no. Some people were affected by COVID, jobs of you know people who are working in the casino industry or the service industry, but other occupations could easily make that transition to work from home and felt almost no negative financial effects with some people actually doing better financially um, because of the pandemic, which is stock markets or, or whatnot that they were able to kind of take advantage of. And so I think like that's something that's really important to think about is that Yes, the economic situation in Nevada is pretty rough, but it's not rough for everyone. The other factors that I would say are really important to kind of consider is we saw historically low interest in mortgage rates um, offered by the Federal Reserve, in part because of COVID, (laughs) which you want to stimulate the economy. You want to make sure that people feel comfortable buying. We also, what makes Nevada attractive to live in? Partly, we don't have state income taxes, right? We have lower living costs and less traffic. And so more people are moving to Nevada. And with that comes more of a demand for housing, driving that reduced supply. And of course, like when you think about people moving in, we talk about the people from California coming in, they can afford higher housing prices because their home in California is worth, they can sell it for more than it would cost to purchase a home here in Nevada. So, you know, we've talked about these these cash buyers and, and kind of what it is and the economic implications and, and why it's happening, but but who are they or, or what are these cash buyers? Are these wealthy individuals? Are they big corporations? Is it a mix? Yeah. So most of these cash purchases appear to be driven by investors, um, some mom and pop rental property owners, but mostly larger rental investment corporations or just larger investment companies. We're also seeing trends of millennials joining investment pools that are kind of combining assets and money to purchase homes. It's impossible to know exactly who because the state doesn't really track those purchases and there's no central repository with that information. But we're kind of seeing larger sort of entities out of state buyers. So how are the home buyers kind of seeing this from their perspective, watching these these big investment groups come in and buy up houses that they want to buy, right? Right. So one potential home buyer I spoke with said he's seen buyers purchase for the rental market firsthand. He actually put an offer in on a house in February and the offer was accepted, but then the pandemic hit Nevada. He canceled the deal because his employer, MGM Resorts, furloughed about 90% of his workers and he wasn't sure that he would have the financial capital to make those mortgage payments and, and keep up with the house. But now houses in that same neighborhood are selling for up to $80,000 more than they were last February. And he's noticed that a lot of the buyers within his price range who've purchased those homes are turning around and renting out those properties. Whether it's hedge funds now buying houses or people saying, oh, I own two houses already. I'm going to buy three, four, five and keep the rental um, income coming in. It's just frustrating that something that is like, 
like something that was once aspirational has just been turned into a moneymaker for people that have the cash to go about it. And I think that's really deceiving for a lot of people. So with housing prices going up, as we're seeing them in the past year, what, what does this mean for renters? I don't really have a definitive answer for you. I'd say that if we're seeing higher home prices, we'll likely see higher rental prices, especially for people that are renting these new homes that are being purchased. But I am going to be working on an article that dives into that issue in the future. I will say, however, that the average rent right now in apartments in the Reno Sparks area is around $1,400. That's almost 7% more than last year. And in Las Vegas, the average rent is $1,300 a month. That's 18% growth. And we do know know that the higher rental prices are leading to renters who are considering becoming homeowners and using their money to pay off a mortgage. But it's tricky because again, cash buyers are making it difficult for conventional buyers to acquire a home. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of stuck in this weird rent prices are increasing. People are having a hard time affording that. And yet where do they go? All right. Well, Tabitha, thank you so much for, for breaking all of this down for me. I know there's a lot going on with the housing market. And if, if the listeners would like to, to read more on this topic, make sure to follow Tabitha on Twitter and also, you know, follow her reporting on our website, thenevadaindependent.com for more information. Tabitha, thank you so much. Thanks, Joey. Radio Goldfield is a small community radio station located in, you guessed it, Goldfield, Nevada. The town at one point was the largest in Nevada, with over 20,000 people living there in the early 1900s during the gold rush. But after the gold dwindled and fires burned down most of the town, it ended up a small pit stop along US-95 between Reno and Las Vegas, with only about 300 residents. Community radio stations are important for small rural towns, which have limited cell service and broadband infrastructure. One of the most important ways to get information is from stations such as Radio Goldfield, which services not only Goldfield, but the surrounding towns of Beatty, Tonopah, and Hawthorne. But what the station lacks in size, it makes up for in personality. Carl Brownfield is the station's program director, and his journey to the station is full of twists and turns. I met him on a reporting trip in May when photographer David Calvert and I visited to gather footage and photos that were published on the site this week as part of a feature story about the station. I'll let Carl take it from here to talk a little bit more about what brought him to Goldfield, the station's story, and the story of the town that still thrives there. I grew up in Downey, California. I grew up Mormon, and I spent two years as a Mormon LDS missionary. Though I'm not an active Mormon today, I've never denounced. When I finished my two-year mission, the, the draft was uh, imminent. In June of 67, I went to Vietnam on a troop ship, my first long boat ride. That was fun. Uh, so I got back and I had various jobs and raised four children and never had a clue that I would get into the movie theater business. I invested 40 grand in sound. Sound had always been an important part of my life. Uh, if I'd sold the theaters, I went to Las Vegas because my brother lived there and I drove cab on the strip for 21 years and loved every day of it. I came out, I had a travel trailer and I came out to spend one winter and it turned into the rest of my life. So you just never know. But I, I met my wife in Vegas and we'd been married a while and we watched a Discover Nevada series. And we had just bought a small lightweight uh, fifth wheel. I saw in the news he did a, a, a cast from here in Goldfield. Actually, they were at the Mozart Tavern, and uh, it was a bar restaurant at the time, and 
they were in there talking to local people and they showed the hotel. Well, I've always loved the old Wild West and I've always loved history. So we came up here. I'm a pretty outgoing guy. I don't sit around and not make friends. You know, as far as I'm concerned, everybody I haven't met is just a friend I haven't met. So I started talking to people and, and about the town. I told them about following from Vegas and coming up. By 2001, uh, we were busily working on, on building our retirement home here in Goldfield. If you listen to our station, you'll notice that we're almost all acoustic music. There's several reasons for that. One is, I play guitar. <laughs> I've been involved in, uh, I was involved in the Minnesota Bluegrass and Old Time Music Association. I've always loved roots music, that what's down home, what's, what's from American roots. Uh, I have been listening to the radio all my life, off and on, uh, trying to search for that station that really hit home. And uh, the closest thing I ever found was Prairie Home Companion. We're not emulating or trying to copy Prairie Home, but that would be the closest KGFN you could liken us to would be a constant Prairie Home. I learned a lot from this, because what you do is you get locals involved. If you can get locals or locals' kids involved, They'll listen to you every day. Not only do I pilot this place here, I'm the secretary of the Masonic Lodge, and I'm, on, I'm the vice president of the school board, and I'm the uh, communications guy on the board for our county LEPSI, local emergency planning. Oh, and I'm on vice president of the Chamber of Commerce. We're going to apply for uh, broadcast licenses. Get this for Dyer, Pahrump, and for Lower Smoky Valley, or Smoky Valley, which has got Round Mountain Gold, Hadley, and all that. So that's where we would like to expand Radio Goldfield too. Goldfield is a destination for people who really want to be creative. We have for the good or for the bad, we have no building codes in Goldfield except commercial. And if somebody is in trouble or needs help, this whole town will come to your aid. You might be a jerk, and maybe the next week, you know, they're going to call you a jerk and not let you on their property. But in the meantime, we need every soul that we can get in this town. And there's a whole lot of love amongst the citizens of this town for each other. We're a little wary of uh, strangers that come into town. You never know who's going to knock on your door. We had another gal come in, knocked on the door. My wife and her girlfriend were doing a show. In here she comes, she says, I'm a traveling musician. I have a guitar in the car. Can I come in and play some music on the air? And they said, sure. So anyway, uh, she come in here and had her guitar. And my wife called me and she says, this gal's really good. Melody guy. And I said, really? And I so I grabbed my guitar, put it in case I came over here. We sat out there and I listened to a couple of songs and I you know, figured out a few things to back her up. And uh, we came in and played some music on the air live. It was fun. You just never know. This is the main corridor though for snowbirds. 
And where Radio Goldfield has really gained recognition and listenership is because people, probably 80% of the snowbirds that come from Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Alberta, that go to Arizona for the winter, if they see our sign, a lot of them will turn us on and they'll check us out. We got a donation uh, a week ago of $250 left in our little mail slot with a note and it said, we really love your station and so do a whole bunch of people that live by us in Corvallis, Oregon. If you listen to us for two days, we'll be number one on your dial. And uh, that's the key. And people say, well, I don't know why I love it, but I do. We get all these great shows that come in, plus our own shows that we produce. Producing 13 shows at this point. My wife does three, but you can listen to us and we create no stress. There's nothing in our broadcast that will create stress. You know, what's misunderstood really is that there's a bunch of backward people live up here. They're not backward, they're just free thinking. People that, it takes a certain kind of person to live here and, and like it and love it. You have to be creative and you have to be self-sufficient. If you'd had said 10 years or 20 years ago, you're gonna be on school board, I would have laughed. I would have laughed, you're crazy. There ain't no way that I would do that. If you'd like to learn more about Radio Goldfield and the town, check out my story on our site, thenevadaindependent.com. My story is accompanied by a video I made and a beautiful photo gallery from David Calvert. And if you're interested in listening to the station, you can find it by searching for Radio Goldfield on radiogarden.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Pete Buttigieg, Chanel Polito, Humberto Sanchez, Tabitha Mueller, Brian Bonenfant, and Carl Brownfield for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter, soundcheck, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, the best mechanical keyboard keys, 35mm film stock recommendations, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Reno Band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Storyblocks and some original music from myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>